All right, Luke chapter 19 this morning, verses 11 to 28. Uh, why don't, or 11 to 27 is what I'll read. Why don't we um, look at the Word of God and uh, we'll read this whole passage um, to get started. Hear the Word of the Lord. As they heard these things, this is Jesus having um, spoken of the salvation of Zacchaeus, and also he has said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So it says, verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, And said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, I pray that it would be spoken clearly and compellingly to your people. I pray that I would not misstep, make a mistake in my words, Father, but what I say, I pray that it would be true. I pray that it would be your word. And I pray that you would give me the heart, Lord, to preach it only for your glory and the true good of your people. Help us all, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us. I pray, Father, that we would have willing and humble hearts to listen. I pray that there wouldn't be a single aspect of what you say here that we would refuse. I pray, Father, that from our hearts we would worship you and our our response, our obedience would be truly worshipful and pleasing to you. The kind of obedience, Father, that will be rewarded when Christ comes again. Father, uh, give to me your Holy Spirit. Give to all of us your Holy Spirit for that God-honoring response. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
So as we uh, continue, we have been in Luke's narrative for, for some time now. As we continue, we're coming to the end of Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. And as he draws near to the city, the, the crowds are just surging to him. And with their surging to him, their kingdom hopes are also surging. The people think that all the indicators are there for the coming of the kingdom of God immediately and for the overthrow of Rome's kingdom. There is just this frenzy of anticipation around Jesus. Now it's true that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and accomplishes the work that God has given him to do, he will accomplish our redemption. He's going to accomplish our salvation. But it's not in the way that the people expected. We know that. Ryan was talking a little bit about that at the end of his lesson this morning. It's not in the way that people thought. It wouldn't be in the overthrow of Rome's kingdom. Not yet. Even the twelve disciples grossly misunderstood what Jesus' intentions were. Even when He told them several times that in Jerusalem He would be rejected, He would be tortured, killed, and on the third day He would rise again. But they didn't understand the meaning behind those words. He wasn't going there to wear the crown. He was going there to bear the cross. And that was the reason for this parable. Jesus wanted his followers to understand what would happen, that there would be a meantime, an in-between time between coming to Jerusalem and finally inheriting, receiving the kingdom. Here's the question that I want us to be able to answer this morning. Why is it that they think that the kingdom is coming right here, right now, in power and glory? And why do they get the times wrong? It's for the same reason that this servant that we read about in the middle of this parable forfeits his reward. It's for the same reason. They don't understand. Here's the answer, and that will go, you know, take a little bit longer time to uh, unpack it. But they don't understand the nature of the times because they don't understand the nature of the king. And this servant ends up forfeiting his reward and losing all. He doesn't get the king's reward because he doesn't know the king's glory. They don't know the king. And that is the reason that they lose everything. That's the reason why they're wrong and so on. And so we need to get the nature of the times right, definitely. We need to understand the true nature of service. Sure. But all that's going to come together if we know the king. If we understand the true glory of the king, our Lord Jesus Christ. We must know Jesus as he is. You know, there are all kinds of versions out there. There is the legalistic Jesus that many people worship. They think that they have to do so much in order to merit His salvation. And they think that if perhaps their good outweighs their bad, they will be in the kingdom with Jesus. But they do not know Jesus as He is. There is the political Jesus, whose name gets invoked at every campaign season. 
many, not all, many politicians simply use his name to win a certain vote. And then there is the cultural Jesus, the the pop culture Jesus, the Jesus who is my life coach, who gives me good guidance. There's sometimes when I need him. Most time I can make it on my own. But whenever I falter, Jesus is there. He's got great advice. I'd put it right on par with Dr. Phil and Oprah. That's the pop culture Jesus. And then there is the, the health and wealth gospel Jesus. The Jesus who is just a cosmic vending machine. And that's how many people know Jesus. There's several versions, different Jesuses, you could say. But that's not Jesus as He is. And if we're talking about worshiping Jesus wrongly, if we're talking about having a miss, such a gross, fundamental misunderstanding of His true nature, you're not worshiping Jesus at all. You're worshiping, in fact, a false god. It's idolatry. And so we must, this is the first thing, we must know Jesus as He is, as He is clearly revealed to us in His Word. So, that's what we're always about. That's what we're always striving to do as we come into God's Word. So let's do it again. Back into verse 12, please. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Jesus' listeners in the crowd that day could relate to this. If they had kept up with their social studies classes at school, they would be well aware that, um, let's see, about... 20, 25 years earlier, Herod the Great had died. And when Herod the Great died and passed off his kingdom to his son, Archelaus, he had to go to Rome to request from Caesar his kingdom. And so when Jesus says this, this is going to jar the historical memory of the crowd who's there. They, they know what this is like. Nobleman goes to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, Jesus isn't saying he's like the wicked Herods. He's not like them at all. But there's, there's a parallel to the kingship of Christ. Jesus has promised us, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. But we know that what he meant was he would be with us by his spirit, right? His spirit is within us. Permanently, Christ is with us. But He's not physically here. He is physically gone. Ascended in victory to the right hand of the majesty on high. He is Lord of all. He has been given the name above every names. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Already, those things are true. But not yet has Jesus Christ established the kingdom of God upon this earth. That's why we still have sin in our lives. That's why there is so much tragedy in the world today. There's so much division, war, etc. Because Christ's kingdom has not yet been established. That's our hope. That's the great longing of the Christian heart. We are crying out, Your kingdom come. We want our king to return. And Jesus will accomplish this in the fullness of God's time. We're living in the meantime. So let's look back into the parable. Verse is 13 and 14 and uh, see how Jesus relates these truths in this story. He says, Calling ten of his servants, the nobleman gave them ten minas. 
and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, not all of the citizens are happy with this king. In fact, some of them hate this king. And so it says in verse 14 that they send a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And this is exactly what happened with Herod the Great's son. After Herod the Great, he had ruled over all of um, all of Israel in the day. After he died, and Archelaus was you know, uh, stood to inherit all of that. He goes to Caesar to receive his kingdom and the Jews hate this man because he is cruel. He is horribly violent like his father was. They are afraid of him and they protest to Caesar. And even though Archelaus comes back with a portion of the kingdom, he doesn't have all of it because of the protest of the Jews. So again, Jesus is jarring their memory and they can relate to all of this This detail, this makes sense to them. Now, the nobleman requires that his servants continue to be productive and to be profitable in their service until he comes back with his kingdom. And so to that end, he gives to each one of these servants a mina. Now, who are the ten servants? They're simply representative of all the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the mina represent? A mina was equal to four months' wages in that day. And the mina simply represents what Jesus Christ has given to us, every single one of his people, effectiveness to serve. We have, from Christ, the ability, the capacity to serve. It's not something we work up on our own. It's not some kind of natural talent, we have gift from Christ that enables us to serve him effectively. Do you truly believe that? That you have all that you need, just like the Bible says, for life and for godliness in Christ? Do you serve Jesus confidently? No matter who you are, you might be feeling like your life is winding down as far as time goes. Or you might feel like um, you're at the beginning, but you're not at your prime yet. You're too young to serve like others. Or perhaps you just look at other people and you think of the, the skill that they have, the place that God has put them, and you're just, that's not me. I, I don't feel like I can serve where I am in life, how old I am, how young I am, whatever. I just don't feel like I can serve Him like others can But Jesus has given you, as his follower, all that you need to serve him effectively for your service to be profitable to Christ's kingdom. That's what Christ says. What he calls you to, he enables you for. What he calls you to, he enables you for. And if you have faith in Jesus to save you perfectly, then have faith in Jesus to serve Him powerfully. And I know that you are trusting in Christ. I believe that about those who are gathered in this room. I don't know all of you perfectly well, but for those of you I know, I believe that truly. You're trusting in Christ for your salvation. So trust Him for service too, because He has given you what you need 
to serve Him to the glory of His name. No matter what your station in life, no matter what you think your skill set might be, He has given you what you need. Now, Jesus gives, or rather, the nobleman gives to each one of these the same thing. We know that that does not mean that all of us have the exact same gifting. We don't all have the exact same role in the Christian life. But listen to me. Listen to the Word of God. The most important things we share in common. So this is what you have. Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God in you. By the Holy Spirit, you have new life. You have a new heart. And you have been called into the fellowship of believers. And you have been called into that family to be built up and to build up. And although we all have spiritual gifting that may vary, you have a spiritual gift from the Lord to use for your most focused and productive service in the kingdom of God. You have all of these things. And all of that is wrapped up in the mina that the nobleman gives to his servant. Jesus has given you what you need for effective service. No matter where you go in life, no matter what church you may end up being in, thinking of Nathan going off to Chattanooga, Jesus gives you what you need for effective service. In verse 15 it says, The king returns, having received the kingdom. That is so easy for us to skip over, but I love that part of the parable because, you know, uh, the citizens hated the king and they protested his reign. And you know that there were so many, you just have to read between the lines, they conspired, they plotted, they had, maybe they had assassination attempts, you know, so many things that they wanted to do to, to stop him, to stop his will and his reign. But in the end, they couldn't do a thing. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It says in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast their cords from us. What is the Lord's response? The Lord who sits in heaven laughs and He holds them in derision, it says in Psalm 2. And He responds, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. If you're paying attention, you don't have to be in social studies class. You don't even have to watch the news every night to know that the antagonism of the world against our Lord Jesus Christ is growing. And I'm thinking particularly of the West. I'm thinking of America. We know that the opposition against Jesus, against the Christian faith, is growing. It's getting deeper. It's getting louder. We were talking about this in Sunday school too, about the threats of the world, their slander, their mockery of the Christian faith, and so on. 
it won't accomplish anything. Christ cannot be defeated. He is coming with His kingdom. And the world cannot do a thing to stop it or to slow it from coming. So I just wanted to say that to encourage you to take heart. When the king returns, there is an accounting for what his servants have done while he was gone. And it says in verse 15 that one by one they present their service to the nobleman, to the king. I want to read that. It says, He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. You realize that this is going to be for us too, right? For all of us, each of us, individually. We will be called before the Lord on that day of reckoning and we will give an account for what we have done with what the Lord has given to us. There is a passage that spells this out. I'm not going to take any time to read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All of our work will be tested and revealed for the quality that it is. What is true work for the glory of God is going to last and it will be rewarded. But that service which has been done in our own strength and for our own name will be lost on that day. It will be burned up. But each one of us, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's see what happens in the parable Quickly, verses 16 to 19. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Okay, earlier we said that the mina is representative of what Jesus Christ has given to us for effective service. So what is this ten minas? What is this five minas? What does that represent? It simply represents how the Lord has multiplied our service in His name. The question that I want to ask is, how does He measure increase? How does God measure success? I think this is pretty important. I think this really helps us to set our values right. God doesn't look on outward appearance, does He? He looks on the heart. Numbers don't impress Him. I'm not saying numbers are completely unimportant. But I am saying they don't impress Him. Profit margins don't impress Him. They may impress an earthly nobleman, but they do not impress our God. What is it that pleases Him? What is the Lord looking for? What kind of service is He going to reward on that day? Very quickly, let's consider four criteria. I'll bring up four Scriptures that for the most part I think you should be familiar with. Do you remember what Jesus said about the poor widow woman that He saw offering the two copper coins in the temple? He said about her in Luke 21. We'll get there in a few weeks. 
She has put in more than all of them, for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Number one, do you give as you have been given? Do you give as you have been given? If we have been given much, then we should not give just a little. If we have been given abundantly, let us give to the Lord abundantly. Let us serve out of what He has given to us. So do you give as you have been given? Second thing, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. Do you give with a glad heart? That's the second thing. Not out of compulsion, not because you feel like I have to. Not to meet other people's expectations. But do you give out of a glad heart? Third thing, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all for, fill it in that one too, to the glory of God. Do it whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, Paul said, do all for the glory of God. So do you give for God's glory? That's the third thing. And then fourth, just consider this. This is such an encouraging verse. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Last thing, do you give for others good? Do you give for the good, the true good of others? So those four criteria are all going to be considered by our God. Do you give as you have been given? Do you give with a glad heart? Do you give for God's glory? And do you give for others good? These are the things that the Lord is going to examine us for. Let's look at verses 21 to 23 again. Here we come to this servant who ends up losing everything. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. And he's honest. He says, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. When this individual is called to give an account before the king, all that he has to offer is the same thing back and nothing more. Nothing more but a pathetic, lame excuse. In fact, he turns everything around back on the king. You see what he is saying, essentially? He's saying, I did nothing with all that you gave me. I didn't use it at all. But you know why? It's not because of me. It's because of you. It's because of you. I didn't do anything, but it's your fault because of who you are, because of who I know you to be. Look at the king's response. I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? Jesus is saying, the nobleman, the king, is saying, if this is what you knew me to be, then you still have no excuse. If you were afraid, if this is who you thought my character was, why didn't you at least, you could have done the very minimum, just drop it in the bank. 
It could have collected interest. You could have given me that back. But here's the truth about this, this individual. He doesn't know the king. The, all that he says about the king is not true. The individual who has nothing to offer God, who does not serve him, who, to use other biblical languages, um, bears no fruit, has no justifiable excuse. Every mouth will be stopped, to use the words of Romans chapter 3. No excuse. Listen to these words. Could anyone who truly believes that Christ gave his life for him ever turn around and tell the Lord that in asking him to work for him, the Lord was asking for something for nothing? And would anyone who believes that Christ's death has secured him forgiveness for all his sins ever tell Christ that he was afraid to work for him in case he made a mistake? If you know that Christ has forgiven all, you can't not serve him because you're afraid that you're going to make a mistake. You see the illogic in that? That it makes no sense whatsoever. It is all just pathetic, lame excuse. Now, does he know this king? I know that these words can be a little bit confusing. This is one of the harder parables. But does he know, does he know the character of the king? He, he impugns the character of the king because just consider the two cases that were before him. Again, a mina that each servant refute, uh, refused, that they each received is worth four months wages. And then every mina's worth of profit that they hand over to the king for every minus profit, they get what? A city. One mina, one city. That's not a comparable ratio there. Uh, pick on Nathan. Nathan's been working at spray foam for a while. Let's just say that over the last four months, for his four months' wages were uh, was ten thousand dollars. Probably not. But let's just say that it was. So Nathan goes to Chattanooga, goes into city court, barges into the office of the mayor, drops $10,000 on his desk and says, I want the city. $10,000 for Chattanooga. Let's make a deal. What does the mayor do? Hits the little button, security, or just, what's wrong with you? I mean, this is not a comparison, a fair comparison. It's not even close. One minus one city. Ten minus ten cities. It's not equal. Who is this king? This is the most generous king that there has ever been. This is the king who takes pleasure in his servants and in their service. Who loves them. He's not a Scrooge. He doesn't hoard everything to himself. He's not a miser. He is wildly generous, super abundantly generous with what is his. He gives it to his servants. Does that servant who has said, you know, you're just going to jump all over me if I lose what I got, and you know, is that what he's like? He said, if I put my best foot forward, it's not going to be enough for you, yada, yada. It's not what he's like at all. He, that's his fundamental problem. 
And that will be the fundamental issue for everyone who professes Jesus, who professes to be a servant, but who does not bear fruit, who does not actually serve. Yes, I'm a servant of Jesus. No, I do not serve Him. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't really follow. That does not work. It does not make any sense whatsoever. We know we're weak. And we know our service is just beggarly. But every branch that's truly abiding in the vine bears fruit. And what happens to those branches that look like they're on the vine that don't bear fruit? They fall to the ground, they wither, they are gathered up, and they are burned. John 15. Or consider the parable of the seed in the soils. Where there is good ground, it produces. Whether 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold, Jesus said, it produces. The, the effectiveness, the production might vary from believer to believer. It does. But all true believers in Christ will bear fruit. So this servant, he is no servant at all, truly. Even though we're not seeing the king order his execution, consider these words from the parable that actually corresponds to this one from Matthew 25. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. This is the servant who gives nothing to the king. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. Listen, quote a preacher, Phil Riken. He said, according to Jesus, it is wickedness not to use what we have to serve our God. So again, who doesn't serve? It's the one who doesn't know the glory of the King. That's the one who forfeits the reward of the King. The one who projects fault onto Him. The one who projects sin onto Him. The one who misreads Him. The one who has a false God in mind. That's the one who forfeits reward. So this must be the great goal of our life. To know the King as He truly is. You, each of you, must make that the aim of your life. I must know Christ. He claims this, as we were talking about in Psalm 145, as I read earlier in the service, glorious splendor of His majesty. You might think, I'm not seeing it. I don't see what the Bible talks about. Then get into the Word more and pray harder until God has mercy on your soul and He opens the eyes of your heart and you see Him for true, for who He truly is. See Him. Know Him. And then the service will come. You won't be able to help it. The surface service will come and you will by no means lose your reward. We have to keep going. We have a few uh, more verses to cover. The king commands, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. But some there object. Lord, he has ten minas. Like he didn't know. He just said that. But they don't think that it's fair to take the one from the one who has so much, or I mean, from the one who is destitute now and give it to the one who has so much. But listen to what the king says. Because this is a principle for life. This is, this applies to you and to me. I tell you, 
that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And I want to, I want to put this in the most encouraging way that I can. This is how things work in the economy of God's kingdom. If you want to give, God will enable you to give. If you have a giving heart, you are going to have opportunity to give. If you want to serve, you may serve. There won't be anything that can stop you from serving if you want to serve. Think about the God that we have who is commanding our service and who is supplying for it and strengthening it. Who is He? What kind of God is He? Our God is infinite. He's not a borrower. He's the lender. He's the giver. Every resource that we depend on, He's the source behind all of them. He's the source of every resource. He is infinite. He he doesn't have any needs. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't hunger. He's the infinite God. And out of the overflow of His infinite greatness, His unsearchable greatness, He gives. He creates. He sustains. He multiplies. He revives. He builds up. He grows. All of that is out of who our God is. And we're on the receiving end. He has poured into us. Why does He pour into you? Not so that we can sit back and take it easy, twiddle our thumbs and, you know, kind of like the man who builds up his barn so big and then his plan is, and I'll say to my soul, soul, eat, drink, and be merry. Because you're good. That's not why God prospers His people. He prospers us so we may prosper others. He pours into you so you may pour into others. So, listen. I'm not necessarily talking about money. But if you have a giving heart, you will always have something to give. Not always necessarily money. But what is our strength? The joy of the Lord. If you have a giving heart, the Lord will give you that joy which will be your strength to keep on serving. Or think of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 who said, I toil and I struggle according to the energy that He powerfully works within me. If you want to give to the Lord, He will give you the energy and the strength to give. And here's, here's a, you want a proof text, here's a, actually, I don't have time to ask you to turn there and wait on you. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, verses 6 to 11. Listen to these words. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able, listen to this promise, people of God, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having 
all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You better tack on of your righteousness onto the end of harvest, or then you get into the trap of God's going to make me rich. Not the way it works. He will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And all God's people said amen to that. Verse 27, the king concludes, But as for these enemies of mine, he's speaking of the citizens who hated him, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What does this mean? There's so much I could say about this verse. Let me put it like this. This means that in the end, every heart will have what they truly desire. The heart that truly desires Christ. I mean the true Christ. Jesus as He truly is. Every heart that is set on Him will have Him and every spiritual blessing in Him. Every heart who truly wants Christ, that is the biblical Christ, will have Him. But those who do not want Christ will not have Christ. They will be forever separated from Christ and separated from all of His good gifts. If they, to the end, refuse the bread of life, they will eat no more. Not only Christ, but that supply. If they refuse the bread of life until the end, they will eat no more. If they refuse the light of the world to the end, they will see no more. And if they refuse the Prince of Peace, they will rest no more. If they refuse the way, the truth, and the life, they will truly live no more. And on and on we could go. Why did the people get the times wrong? Because they got the king wrong. And why did this servant lose the king's reward? Because he didn't know the true glory of the king. And so what must each and every one of us make the aim of our life? To know the King as He truly is in the glorious splendor of His majesty. And if you know Him, this is what's going to happen. You will give as you've been given. And you will give with a glad heart to the glory of God and to others' true good. And this is the promise of the Word of God. Even if it's a cup of cold water that you give in His name, you will by no means lose your reward. And one last encouragement. You might think, my service in all my life has been so paltry, so slim, 
What have I given to the Lord? All of our service, it's true, is tainted. There's my flesh that's in it. My selfishness in it. No, you just might even do the most menial task. Think, is anybody noticing this? So there's, there's flesh in our service. It will be lost. And it's already forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But all that is of Christ, it's from Him, it's through Him, it's to Him. We can only credit Him. He's going to reward. Even the cup of cold water. And if one mina is, symbolically speaking, resulting in one city, what is a cup of cold water? You cannot outgive God. And on the day of Christ, when you stand before Him, Jesus is going to prove that to every one of His true followers. You cannot outgive God. So be encouraged and serve the Lord with that glad heart and for His glory. Because it will, there will be a reward that will surpass every expectation and imagination that you have. Because that's our God. That's His glory. That's His generosity. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would take Your Word to heart we would take the commands to heart, we would take the warnings, and we would also, Lord, not fail to take Your promises to heart. Lord, I pray that Your servants, Your followers here would be encouraged in You. I pray, Father, that they would realize how generous and good You truly are. You desire, Father, it is Your heart to bless us, to revive us, to build us up, to to make us effective servants for Your kingdom. And I believe that about everyone here, Father, that You have given each one all they need to serve You. So I pray that my church family, my brothers and sisters, would serve You with joy, May the joy of the Lord be their strength. May they go out in confidence. I pray, Lord, that we would not serve to get noticed ourselves, to meet anyone's expectation. I pray, Father, that we would serve You out of gratitude. Because of Your generous heart, may we be generous. Because You have been so abundantly gracious to us. I pray that we would give grace. And as You have been merciful to us, pray that we would be merciful. May we in our service reflect what You have done for us through Christ Your Son. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.